may be seated. Well, for the last month, we as a church have been trying to define a church. And the way that we've done that is really by asking ourselves a series of questions and then seeking to biblically and theologically answer those questions. We started the series uh, about a month ago uh, by asking the question, what is the church and really what is it like? And we took a whole service to try to really kind of answer that question. And then in the following three weeks, the next question that we asked was this is, what is or what are the marks of a true church? That is, look, there are churches everywhere. There's just about a church on, on just about every street, street corner around America. But how do you know that the church that you're actually a part of is actually a true church as defined by the Word of God? Well, we saw through studying the Word of God that there are three primary marks to a true biblical church. And that is, it includes the pure preaching of the Word, the pure administration of the sacraments, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then finally, as we, f- we finished up with that last week, it's the practice of church discipline. And what we said is when a church gets together, when a group of believers come together and they begin to function and begin to do those three things, then they are identifying, declaring themselves to be a church and they ought to be viewed as a church, at least biblically. Well, the, the most logical question that should follow up after those two questions should be this, what are the functions of the church? That is, what is a church supposed to be doing? Now, that's an important question for every church because, I, I, because even the best or most well-intended churches that start off in the right direction, who start off with all the good intentions of what the right thing for them to do is, oftentimes over a period of time, they get off track. They begin to kind of move to the left or move to the right, get off a little bit here or there, and the next thing you know, they're, they're, they, they, they kind of forgot to... That what are they supposed to be doing? What has God called them to do? Now, let me suggest something. There are three. When you look to the Word of God, there are clearly three functions of the church. Let me, let me give them to you just really quickly. It's the ministry to God in worship. Would you agree about that? Ministry to God in worship. Ministry to the church in discipling people and caring for believers. So far, you agree with that? And the third we, would be a ministry to the world and evangelism and acts of mercy to a lost world. Would, would, would everybody agree with that? Now, I had all the intentions in the world to preach on that this morning, the three functions of the church. But the more I begin to get in it, I, I really kind of sat there and go, man, I'm repeating everything I've said for the last nine years. And what I mean by that is if you've been here at Celebration for any period of time, you know that those three functions are woven into the very fabric and DNA of our church. In fact, our purpose statement, if you wonder what celebration is all about, here it is in a nutshell. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. Just in that purpose statement right there, we have those three functions of the church. We exist to glorify God, ministry to God. We exist, we, we exist to uh, glorify God by making disciples of all nations. That's the ministry to the church. And then we exist, and then we exist to make um, disciples of all nations. That last part is the ministry to a lost and dying world. We know this so much that even if you've been through one of our new members classes recently, we even teach the same thing there. Pastor Chris, Pastor Jimmy, anybody else who might be teaching it, teach those three functions of the church and how we need to be doing those things. And let me tell you as a pastor, I'm proud to say at Celebration, you guys get this. You guys get this. You guys get those three things. Are we perfect in it? No. 
Do we get out of balance a little bit some of the times? Yes. But for the most part, I believe that our church is being faithful to those three functions. So what I've chosen to do is to bypass that question this morning to get to a far more fun question to be able to answer. Something that's not nearly as decisive and problematic. What I really want to answer this morning is, who governs the church? Right? No, no big deal. Uh, that's, not, that's not something that people have a problem with. In other words, if you don't understand what I mean by who governs the church, who leads the church or who has authority in a church? Now, let me suggest to you this morning that this is hotly contested, mainly within churches, right? Within the church, everybody wants to know uh, who's in charge and who's doing what. And it's funny because everybody wants to be in charge and everybody wants to have authority until something goes wrong. And then everybody says, well, listen, I'm not in charge, right? And then what they want to do is they want to look for those who are in charge to be able to pin it upon them and to be able to blame it on somebody else. Y'all with me? You're not with me. Okay, you guys have never been to a church like that before. Good. I'm so glad you've never been to a church. Then nothing I say today is really going to matter to you, all right? So let me suggest this. So this morning, we want to be able to answer that question, who governs the church? Who has authority in a particular church? And let me tell you this. This church is one of the most, this question is one of the most important questions we can ask. Because if you're wrong on this question, then the rest of your church is going to suffer. If you don't understand God's measure and understanding of how he lays out theology in the church, then what happens is nobody knows who's leading, nobody knows who's following, nobody understands what they're supposed to be doing, and you have complete chaos. I believe, and I'm only speaking on my own experience, I'm a Southern Baptist, so I can, I can talk about Southern Baptists. You guys got that, right? And as a Southern Baptist, I would say the majority of Southern Baptist churches I know about and have been a part of do not function under a biblical model of what the Bible clearly says concerning theology. And because of that, many of them get nothing done for the sake of the gospel. You guys, you guys hear what I'm saying? You guys with me at all this morning, or are you angry already? Okay, all right? Don't know. It's hard to, to, to read sometimes. So what we're going to do is remember, if you're, if you're used to coming here normally, in our normal series, I do expositional preaching, working through texts of Scripture, uh, books of the Bible at a time. But now we're taking a little bit of a time out, and we're looking at what the Bible says as a whole, especially in the New Testament, about these specific subjects being the, um, specifically the church. Now, this outline for mine is not, did not originate with me. It originates actually with John Piper. I stole it from John. You know, John and I are very close. Um, I'm over here, all right? And uh, we're very close. Um, but reading some of his material, it was right along the lines of the way that the Word of God lines out, and that's the way it should be. So I said, you know what? Let me just go ahead and take his outline. So I'm taking my sermon and using his outline to be able to steer us through this particular subject. Understand? You're still with me, and we're only five minutes in. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit is moving today. So I want to show you five different biblical and theological truths that will help us understand who governs the church. Number one, some of you are so anxious, I could tell, oh, I'm ready for this. Give it, come on, come on, preacher. All right, here we go. Number one, and I hope I hear an amen after that, after this. Number one, Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Amen? Jesus Christ is the head of his church. So we can all just breathe out, okay? We could just exhale. Yes, Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Let me give you a couple scriptures for this. Ephesians 5.23 
Christ is the what? Head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent. Number three, Ephesians 4.15 through 16, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the what? Head into Christ. He's the head of what? He's the head of the church. Who is the head? Everybody at the same time. Who's the head? Jesus. Now here's the question, why? Why is Jesus the head of the church? Why does he have authority of the church? Why does he lead his church? Why does he have that right? Let me just suggest immediately, because if it were not for Christ, there would be no church. Jesus Christ birthed the church. Jesus Christ alone, according to his own words, builds the church and most importantly, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone bought the church. Have you ever heard something, maybe you guys have been in church for a long time, heard somebody say, this is my church, or this is our church. Now, let me, let me suggest something on that real quick. You can actually say that phrase and not look like an idiot, okay? Okay, here's how you say it. You could say it in a good way. You could say, hey, this is my church, all right? And when you say that, that's what I would hope everybody here at Celebration would say. And what you're saying is, this is where I've chosen to live out the Christian life. This is the faith community that I want to be a part of, that I've chosen to be a part of. This is a group of people that I'm willing to serve, give to, suffer with, go through difficulties with, encourage each other with. This is my church. There's an identification with that. Or you can sound like something less than holy. And you could say, this is my church. All right, you guys got that? And what that is, the emphasis there is on the my, right? With a little sarcastic my, all right? And this is what that person is saying. What they're ultimately saying is that there is something that they've done or given over a long period of time that now gives them to right to claim ownership on that particular church, which equals they should allow and have done what they want to have done at that church because of what they've, they've done in the past. You guys tracking with me? You guys un understand what I mean by that? And so that's the attitude in which somebody has. But here's what I would say. Not a one of us owns the church because not a one of us can afford the church. The church was purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb. Your blood, even if you were willing to shed it, would not purchase the church, but only the pure blood of the righteous Lamb of God. He bought the church. He owns the church. Jesus Christ is sovereignly in control. That means what he says goes for this church and for the church universally as a whole. Can you say amen to that? Now, I know how some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking at this particular point, hey, that's great theology, that's great Bible, but we really live in the pragmatic, in the practical. Because here's the thing, Brother Mike, you say that Jesus Christ leads the church, but we haven't seen Jesus putting in office hours lately here at Celebration. We haven't seen Jesus lately really leading the finance team and administrating the finance team. We haven't seen Jesus leading the elders 
we haven't seen Jesus uh, dictating and determining what's going to fill out the calendar, how we're going to fill out the calendar for the church. We haven't seen him physically here recently. So how can you ultimately say that Jesus is the one who actually leads, has authority, and governs the church? Let me say this. Jesus leads and governs the church through his word. Through his word is how he governs the church. It is in the word that he's expressly laid out for us everything we need, not only for salvation, but for godliness and how to do this thing called ecclesiology. That is, how do we function as a church? What are the marks of a church? How is the church supposed to function? All those things are answered in the word of God. Let me make sure you understand this. No matter how people respond to Jesus Christ, he is still the head and he still has authority. But when a church as a whole submits to the authority of Jesus Christ through the teaching of the word of God, then that church in a very real way is being led by Jesus Christ. Do you guys get that? When you and I come together and say, we're going to do it Jesus' way, even though Jesus physically is not here, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, in our submission, is now leading this church. That's point number one. Point number two, our church members, all church members are priests and ministers. All church members are priests and ministers. Now, now, now get this. Now, you said that, that's news to you, didn't you? You had no idea. You're not even wearing a collar. You had no idea that you were a priest. Now, the Bible does not teach the priesthood of the clergy. That is that he doesn't, it doesn't begin to use that same phrase priest for ministers in the New Testament, pastors in the New Testament. That kind of fades away from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Why? Because there's a huge shift that occurs between the two. In the Old Testament, it is correct, there were priests. They were set apart. They were through the line. If you were through the line of Aaron, the priests uh, uh, priest were a group of people who were set apart by God amongst the covenant community of Israel to serve distinctly as priests. If you were in a different part of the family, had a different granddaddy, you couldn't serve as a priest, only those in the line of Aaron. And so they had a very specific, very unique, distinct, privileged role. What they would do is take part in primarily three things. They were able to minister in the presence of God. They administered sacrifices for the sins of the people. And they served as mediators between God and his people, uh, translating and teaching the people the word of God. These are all things that priests did. But when we get to the New Testament, that old role of the priesthood passes away. It's no more. Why? Because we have the fulfillment of what it is that they ultimately foreshadowed or pictured. All those priests in the Old Testament, they were types of shadows or shadows of something that was going to come that would ultimately fulfill what it was that they were trying to model. Do you know who that was? Jesus Christ, our high priest. Where they fell short, Jesus fulfilled perfectly. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verses 14 through 16, it tells us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to him in time of need. 
Then 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man and man Christ Jesus. You don't, to have your sins forgiven, have to go to me or to an earthly priest. Guess what? You get to go right to the source, to Jesus Christ. You don't have a heavenly pri- or a earthly priest. You have a heavenly priest, Jesus Christ. You bypass all that and you go straight to God. That's an awesome thing. I've said it like this most of the time when I share my faith with somebody and share the gospel with somebody. Here's what I let them know. Now, bro, if you want to repent and place your full weight in your whole life in faith and the completed work of Jesus Christ, you can do it anywhere, anytime. You just call out to God for his grace and for his mercy and he'll save you. You don't have to come to this pastor to have me lead you through a prayer. You cry out for mercy for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't need me. You need him. Go directly to him. Now, am I willing to pray with someone? Absolutely. It would be a privilege to be able to do it. Or if they ask me, hey, help me navigate through this, will I do it? Yes. But there's no need for a human priest because we have a heavenly priest. Now, the Bible lays this out very clearly. First, 1 Peter 2, 9 says this. says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There it is, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So get this. Old priesthood passed away because it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then in turn, through Jesus Christ, all believers within the covenant community now become priests. Not just one small group, but all believers become priests. Not only priests, but also ministers. It's interesting because people will say, well, you know, you chose to be a minister. And I understand what they're saying. But did you know, biblically, most of the time when the word minister is used, it's not used in context of a pastor, but it's used in context of each and every believer, believers as a whole. For example, let me just give you a couple of verses here. Ephesians 4.12, it states that pastors and teachers exist for what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you're a saint, if you're a saint in Through Jesus Christ, if you've repented and believed in him, if you've been regenerated, if you have the Holy Spirit that dwells in you because he saved you, guess what? You do ministry, therefore you are a what? Minister. Here's another passage, 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. The Bible says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Again, You and I minister. All of us minister. There's not just a small select group. This is for all of God's people. They are what? Priests and ministers. Now, here it is. You say, so what? Therefore, here's a therefore, and here's number three. Can you believe we're on point three already? It's amazing how fast this is going. Point number three, the authority of the local church under Christ is the congregation. The authority of a local church under Christ is the congregation. So the priest and the ministers, which make up the full congregation of a church, collectively holds authority in the local church. The ultimate authority in a church on earth under Christ is not a man, a pastor. It is not simply a group of pastors or a deacon board or an elder board. 
And it's not an individual within the church or a group or a handful of individuals who gave a lot of money to the building program. You guys with me, all right? That's not the authority inside. The, don't let that, by the way, keep you from giving a lot of money to the building program, all right? Just want to make sure, all right? We understand that. Be clear, all right? Because Dan will get on to me, all right? And so, so here, here we have it. It is instead the church collectively. The whole body, this whole group of people together holds the authority under Christ. Now, do you understand what I mean by under Christ? You have authority, but your authority is under Christ. Therefore, you can't say, well, we don't really like what Jesus says. We're going to do it differently. No. You have authority as you seek to submit under the authority of Jesus Christ. So who has the final say? You have the final say collectively. We have the final say collectively. Does that make sense? Okay, now, how does that work out? I, I, I get that. Where do we see this teaching in the Word of God? Let me give it to you. We went over this to great extent last week in the church discipline, but I'm going to use it again here. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, it says this. If your brother sins against you, go to him, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and every word may, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to you, now notice this, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church as a whole, the congregation, what is the final step? Let him be what? Let him be put out of the church. Let him be to you a Gentile and tax collector. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, uh, Paul speaking to the church there. He says, you, meaning the church as a whole, are to deliver this man, a man who is sinful and unwilling to repent from his sin, even after a long process, after a long, great patience with him and great ministry and great teaching to him, they say to do what? They say, deliver him, this man, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So here's the track of thinking. Those who have ultimate authority under Christ, earthly authority under Christ, is that body which is enabled to both include and exclude people from the body of that church. So where the authority rests is really who, who invites people in and is allowed to say, hey, you are a part of us, and who in the church has the ability to say, hey, you're out of here. Now, if I come up to you and I say this, hey, I'm revoking your church membership. Now, first of all, I wouldn't do that. Okay, But if I come and say, I'm revoking your church membership, I, your pastor, am, am acting unbiblically. I don't have the authority to take away church membership, which the rest of the church has voted on and received you in. Only the congregation as a whole can bring you in. Only the congregation as a whole can take you out. That sounds bad, doesn't it? Take you out. Only the whole congregation can take you out, all right? O only they can. Now, remember, this is exactly what we do here at Celebration. Think about it. They go, people go through this torturous new believers class, right? Essential. So my good. You better get in fast because that sucker is getting longer and longer as, as the weeks go by. And what happens is people go in there and they learn and they learn the major doctrines. And we get to hear people's testimony. Why? Because we want regenerate church membership. We want to make sure that at least the people who are a part of the church membership, from what we can tell, at least have a testimony of how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. So after they do that, guess what? We don't give them a certificate and go, hey, you're done. You're a member. What's the last step that we take? We bring them before the church, before you. And we say, this person on the part of your elders have said, on the part, listen, they've done everything that we know. To what we know, 
to hearing their testimony, to watching their lives for this period of week, the best that we can tell you is that they are born-again, blood-washed Christians. Can we know for absolutely sure? No, but we're not going to be sin sniffers. But at the same exact time, from what we can tell, they're believers in Jesus Christ. On our suggestion, would you take these and receive these as a body, and this as, as a member of this faith family? Then the rest of the church members say, guess what? I do or I don't, all right? And so what happens is, if we are going to even enact church discipline, the same thing happens. Somebody asked me last week, why don't we ever enact church discipline? Well, we do on occasion, not very often. Thank Jesus for that. But we do, we do go to people who are blatantly claiming to be a believer in Jesus Christ, yet they're living like, like a lost person, and we go and we try to minister to them. We try to talk with them. We try to intercede with them over a long period of time is the way that the Bible lays out in Matthew chapter 18. It says, but then why don't you ever bring it to the church? Here's why. Because they take off long before we're ever able to bring it to the church. I have found in most of the time when you confront somebody in sin, in love, no matter how loving it is, they are either instantly going to confess and repent and say, thank you, brother, sister, or they're going to get angry, they're going to leave, and they're going to tell everybody what a horrible, terrible, unloving church you are. You guys got me? So that's why if they, if they jettison, then how do you bring it before the church when they've already gone out of fellowship through the church? You guys track it with me on that, right? And so what we find is the church under Jesus Christ as a whole has authority to determine who is in and who is out. That brings us to the next step. God calls some of those church members to lead his people. God calls some of those church members to lead his people. This is what the word of God teaches us. Now, you know, now thank God he does this. Because just stop and think about, about it. Think about 500 people, really, with a Barney Fife complex of authority, all right? Stop and think about that just for a minute. You guys tracking with me? I've got one bullet. I'm going to make it count, right? And, and so what happens is everybody is like, good, I have authority. Then I'm going to do what I think is right in my own eyes. And you, then the person that you're married to is like, I think that's a stupid idea. I, if I were in charge, I would do it this way. So you have, what, mass chaos, You've got everybody determining what, the, what you should do, how you should do. Even if we were agreed with how or what we should do, right, based on the word of God, there are probably going to be some differing thoughts on how we ought to carry it out. Would you agree? Would you agree with that, right? I hear it from you all the time. I know that there are different ways. We're doing the right thing, but there's, everybody has an opinion how it is. So what happens when everybody gets together and goes, hey, listen, I'm leading, y'all follow, but 500 people do that. Let me tell you what you get. You get a crotchety, old Southern Baptist church, okay? I'm saying that, okay? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm sure there's more than just Southern Baptist churches. Let me tell you how my upbringing. Here it is. Everybody has to know everything and vote on everything, okay? So we're going to have a monthly business meeting on Wednesday night when we want to know every single time there was a fluctuation in the water bill and the electric bill, I was in a church that it took us six, I'm not joking, six months to determine what color of paint we were going to use to paint the building. Six months. We started off, can we have somebody suggest what color it is? Well, this is what I think we should do. I don't think we really have the ability to be able to do that. I think we need professionals. Oh, baloney. 
Have you ever heard the priesthood of the believer? We can make decisions like this. Everybody knows that the best color of the walls are beige. Wait a minute, beige? I grew up with white walls. My grandmammy and that old church had white walls. We need white because that's how Jesus washes this white as snow. Okay, well, maybe we need to table this for the next week. Next week, somebody comes with all these different colors. Nobody can agree. People are getting so angry with each other. What do they do? They go to the next one. Are, are y'all with me on this at all? I mean, you don't get anything done by doing this. You know what I like to do? This is what we did with the building. There was two people, the Vosses, they have incredible, impeccable taste. I just sat there and said, do you guys just mean basically just take a little group and determine what everything's going to look like? Yeah, we'll go ahead and do that. Thank you very much. Would you guys just, well, just empower you, just go into it. We didn't vote with 250 people, 350 people. We just went ahead, moved it, and, and enabled them to be able to do their thing. You, you guys got that. So you've got to have some leadership. You've got to have people. But remember, the people within the group that you set apart, that the congregation themselves set apart to be leaders in the church. And then what the Bible says is you willingly submit to their leadership. You say, where do we see that? Well, notice a couple things. Hebrews 13, 7, leaders, okay? Notice this. The leaders in the church are to model a life of faith. Now, notice this. Uh, it says, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. So whatever leaders you have in the church, they're supposed to live in such a way that you're trying to model after the way that they live their life. You got that? that that's what you're looking for in a leader. Number two, leaders are to watch over the spiritual well-being of God's people. Do we have this? We have these up? I can't tell from here. The print is so small. I can see it. Okay, all right. We have, we have that up. Very good. All right. With glasses on, he squints. That's a terrible thing. All right. So leaders are to watch over the spiritual well-being. This is what we read in the beginning, Hebrews 13, 7. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Don't you love that word, submit? Doesn't that just make you feel all warm and fuzzy all over? Oh, submit. It's my favorite word. Obey, submit, favorite word. But yet the word of God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. He says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will give an account. Then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, you'll see the third one come up. Leaders are to work for the good of the people. They're not working for their own special interests. They're working for their own, for the interest of the people. He says, we beseech you, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love, in love, in love. Just repeating that. You don't know where I'm going with this, but just remember that in love because of their work. Okay, so the Bible sets out. That amongst the body of Christ, underneath Jesus Christ, as a congregation as a whole, they are all priests, they are all ministers, but they willfully, under the submission and direction of God, set apart for themselves leaders, which is evidence in the word of God. You guys tracking with me so far? And then final point here, what, do these, what are these leaders called? The word of God calls these leaders elders. These leaders are elders. Now, the Bible uses different types of words. It uses bishops, overseers, pastors. Kind of an interesting thing. We as Baptists think of pastors most of the time, which is interesting because it's the least used word in the New Testament to be able to speak of an elder. But yet, that's what we have kind of chosen to speak of our elders as, is, is pastors. And so all of those words are synonymous. They all basically mean the same. And they are all called of God and set apart by the corporate body of believers. 
Now, what I want to show you is I just want to show you a couple things in the Word of God. And this is what I want you to see. I know it's Southern Baptist. I'm just, I'm trying to help from the Word, okay? That's what I'm trying to do. I know it's Southern Baptist, and again, I am one. Most of the time, we think of one pastor and his helpers. And so in a lot of churches, there's been one guy who is the potentate. And then you have all the kind of associate pastors that are helpful to him and rarely are there ever any kind of lay elders in the church. That is, the elders in the church that have a regular secular job within the church. Rarely Southern Baptist Church. It's usually one pastor. There's a deacon board that helps basically rule or just rules. And then you have one pastor. But when the Bible speaks of elders, pastors, it almost always speaks in a plural sense. That there's more than one. That there's many or several elders. Now notice Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, Acts 15, 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men and to send them to Antioch. See the plural elders? They were going to choose elders. Not one, but a plurality of elders. Now let me say something real quick. Did you notice there? He says, he says, he says it was good to the apostles. We don't have apostles anymore. But the elders that already existed and the whole church to choose men to descend them to Antioch. This is what we find in the beginning. In the beginning, we find the apostles appointing these elders and leaders of the church. As it progresses, we see those elders appointing more elders of the church. As it progresses from there, we see both the elders, existing elders, and the congregation as a what? As a whole, setting apart for themselves elders to be able to lead in the church. You guys tracking with me on that? Okay, so this is the picture that we have, Acts 20, 17. And from uh, Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, there's plural, of the church. All the towns of Crete, in, in Titus 1, 5, Paul says this, This is why I, Paul, left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All the churches in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia that Paul wrote to in 1 Peter 5, 1, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as partaker in the glory that it is to be revealed. So all the churches Paul founded in his first missionary journey, according to Acts 14, 23, says that he appointed elders there's a plurality of elders and let me just ask you this no matter how you were brought up do you see the biblical precedence for a plurality of elders do you see that do you see the wisdom in it i mean do you see the wisdom in that guys people are manipulative pastors can be manipulative pastors are called set apart or are called by god set apart by their people but they're not infallible and so a pastor can easily fall into sin. Your pastor sins. You know that. Don't remind me, okay? I know that. You have got to have other godly people who are surrounding and working together to make sure that, guess what? There's integrity there, and integrity is held within the leadership of that church. So you guys get what, we, you, you get what we're talking about so far. So let me run it down to you, and I'm going to give you a couple quick points of application. Wow, we're to the end. And everybody said, amen. Yes, I know. So here's the picture. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority of the church. He builds it. He bought it. He birthed it. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. 
And a church demonstrates they are under the authority of Jesus Christ when they submit to his leadership by submitting to the word of God. Believers, every believer, every single one of you are priests and ministers. And every single one of you together holds the authority of Celebration Baptist Church. You can determine who is in. You can determine who is out. Because of our submission to Jesus Christ, we submit to God in our ecclesiology, which says set apart elders. So you set apart from the congregation elders who will lead. So here's how it is. Full congregation has authority, but they set apart elders who will lead. Then the rest of the congregation willfully submits to their authority and their direction. That's the picture of it. That's how the word of God works. Now let me give you some application in this. A couple points of application. Submission to elders is not blind. Submissions to elders is not blind. You know, it's funny because we as a church always, if you're around long enough, it's kind of like clothing. You know how you're like out of style today? All right, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting something. But you know how like people like me, I can be out of, I just figure just keep wearing it because in a couple of weeks I'll just kind of, I'll kind of be in style again. You know how it kind of shifts back and forth. Well, churches are like that. And churches have this crazy pendulum swing. And many years ago, it didn't seem that far ago, maybe 20, 30, 30 years ago, the pastor or pastors walked on water. They could do no wrong. Everything they did, the people were just told, hey, listen, you need to submit. That's my pastor. We're going to do it. No questioning. And guess what? It led to a whole lot of shipwreck and a whole lot of hurt because some of those pastors were leading their congregations over a cliff. Not all, but some. You don't want to follow blindly, okay? That's one side of it. On the other side, and I think that this is where we are more, I think today the pendulum is swung, and now there's skeptical submission. Now everybody's skeptical about everything you do. I mean, you sit there and say, hey, we're going to do this. Why are you doing that? What's your motive behind doing that? Why are you doing We need to check up on everything they're doing. You see what I'm saying? There's this shift where you're like, okay, look, there's got to be some kind of balance in between there biblically. And what do we call it? This is where I think we see the picture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be ye imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, guys, follow me as it is clearly evident that I am following Jesus Christ. So here's what you do. As long as your elders are preaching the word of God and they're living lives that are consistent with a life pursuing Jesus Christ without moral failure, then you submit and you follow that leadership. However, if there's moral failure or blatant false teaching of the word of God that would be heretical, by all means, stop following. Don't follow that nonsense. That's not where you're supposed to be. What do you do? As Paul says, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. Follow the leaders as they follow Christ. If they don't follow Christ, then don't follow them. Let me say a couple things about this authority. And I'm going to speak more about what kind of authority this is next week. Next week, I'm going to speak about what is the role of an elder. The following week, I'm going to be talking about the, the, um, the qualifications of an elder because guess what we're about to do? We're about to nominate and elect and set apart elders from this church. That's why we're doing this whole thing. That's why we're even doing the series on the church. So we need to know what we're doing. Let me suggest a couple things about the submission to the elders is not blind. Let me just, two points. It is, it is all right to disagree. It's all right to disagree. It is not all right to be disagreeable. 
Those are two completely different things. It's okay for you to sit there, and it's going to happen. It's okay for, 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 for your elders in your church to be able to make decisions that they believe that after prayer and seeking God and seeking the words of God, say, we believe that God is leading us in this particular direction. It is okay for you to sit there and go, you know what, I don't really agree with that. Now, on some things, a lot of things, it's not really whether they're completely biblical or not. I'm not talking about, hey, this is clearly what the word of God says. But it's okay for you to sit there and go, you know what, I probably wouldn't do it that way if I was in that particular position. It's okay. It's another thing for you to be disagreeable, for you to sit there and go, well, I just wouldn't do it that way. Well, I know you're doing that, but I just completely disagree with what it is. I don't believe that that's the heart of submission. Do do you understand? Here's the second thing. It's all right to have questions. And it's even all right to question. It's okay to come to elders when they're making particular decisions and sit there and go, hey, listen, um, I got a question about how we do this. I believe our elders are welcome. I tell, I tell our elders, listen, you've got to be welcome. When people come and ask questions, they're not always trying to get at you. They just have a question. They want to know how things function. Be open, be warm, allow. I know what, listen, God had to help me with this. I had to learn from other men of God. I learned this from Ronnie Jones. Ronnie taught me this. Hey, Mike, just because somebody has a question doesn't mean they're questioning you, your integrity, or leadership. They're just asking you a question. And I'm like, huh, that seems to make a lot of sense. Thank you very much, Ronnie. I appreciate that. And so they teach that. And so people come, and it's okay to question. What's not a good idea is to be questioning authority and be asking, questioning it in front of other believers. Okay? That's where it begins to become dangerous. I'm just saying. When you begin to disagree or you have a question about something or disagree about something, when it doesn't go to the elders, it's not funneled to the elders, but rather it's funneled to other people in the church and go, here, this is what I disagree with. And I've got some questions of why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? But it never goes to the elders. That's unbiblical. You have to go to the person and to the elders that God has set apart. And that's what we go back to. That's why we went over that whole church discipline aspect yesterday. If you've got a problem, if your brother's sinned against you, go to them. All right? You, you guys following with me? So you go to them so that they can clarify so there's not divisions and fractures within the church. Do you see how clearly that works? Okay, so those are the two things. Here's the second point of application. Submission to elders requires trust. It requires trust. And the reason that it requires trust is this, is that you are setting apart men who are going to make decisions, who are going to set the direction of the church. And sometimes you can't know all the information that they know in making that decision. Because of the nature of our position, there are things that we are bound in that we are told in confidentiality, that legally we are not allowed to say, we are not allowed to do. And if we were to say it, it would hurt the reputation of a particular individual. So we have to do things in certain ways when you're not going to understand fully exactly why those elders are doing it that way. That's why you have to trust. There are some times and some decisions that they make, decisions about music, Decisions about times that you meet, decisions about other things that we are making because we are seeking God and we are talking about and we are praying through, but we make those decisions based on what we think that God has made. We just cannot tell you everything of why we're making a particular decision. Does that make sense? Does it, I mean, that's got to make sense, right? You guys, if, you, if you're a boss in any kind of, if you have any kind of leadership position, you know, sometimes your child is going to come up to you and go, why do we have to do this? And you have to say, son, you're not going to understand. I can't tell you. You just have to trust me. You see that? You're going to have to trust. That brings up two subpoints here. 
First of all, you must be careful to whom you set apart as an elder. Don't set apart somebody as an elder that you don't trust. When you're thinking about somebody that you think will lead well, that will rule well in a church, you have to look at somebody and go, you know what, I trust that person. I think that even if I didn't have all of the information that I needed, I think that of all the people in the church, I would choose that person to make the right decision to be able to lead the church because they can do the job, they're men of integrity, and they have the qualifications of an elder. I believe I could trust them. Do, do you see that? If you can't trust them, then you shouldn't be there. Now, let me suggest this, just a couple things. There are, there are, are, there are some folks that are just disagreeable. Would you, would you admit that? I mean, they're not, it doesn't matter who is elder. If it doesn't matter who an elder is in a church, you're still constantly questioning everything that they do, then you probably just have a heart condition and there's probably something wrong. Not if you question some things or ask some things or disagree on things from occasion. So you have to make sure. You must be able to fulfill the task and must be qualified in Scripture. Let me give you a third, and we're going to sum up very quickly. Here's a third. Submission to elders is not ultimate. The reason that you submit to elders, that's not an end into itself. The reason that you submit to a group of elders is because you're ultimately submitting to Christ. To not to submit to elders that God has placed over you is not to submit to Christ. Wives, it would be the same thing for you. For you not to submit to husband, your husband, is not to submit to Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 5. You're not ultimately submitting to your husband. Who are you ultimately submitting to? Christ. It's the same thing as government. We submit to our government. Why? Because we're ultimately submitting to Christ. We submit to our, to our bosses. Why? Well, because we ultimately submit to Christ. That's why we do all of these things. Here's a fourth one. And let me suggest this. Submission to elders is hard. Submission to elders is hard. It's hard because we just don't really like to submit. We don't even like the word submit. We don't even like the word obey. We don't like people, would you agree, we don't really, we're not real big fans of people telling us kind of what to do. You, you guys got that, right? And directing us. We're not. But let me ask you that. Is that the Christ side or is that the flesh side? It's the flesh side. The flesh side in us, the sin in us, is rebellious. Sin rebels. Sin does not want to submit. But let me, let me suggest this. But submission is the way of Christ. Let me repeat it. Submission is the way of Christ. You say, where do you see that? The Bible teaches us that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death and even death on a cross. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. Now, in turn, what does he do? He lays out for us in the Bible a whole line of areas that we need to submit. Submit to your governors. Submit to your boss. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, submit to your parents. The way of Christ is the way of submission. And guess what? Church members, submit to the authority of the elders that you yourselves under Christ has set apart. You guys got me on that? The reason that we don't like it flat out is because of sin. And look, I understand because I know some of you are already going to sit there and say, well, Brother Mike, how in the world are you going to segue into the gospel on this? Here it is. Because the truth of the matter is, is that is what keeps us from God. It is our rebellious nature that keeps us from having a right relationship with God. It means that I'm the boss, 
God is not. I will do whatever way I, whatever I believe is right. I'll do what, right is, what is right in my own eyes. And the Bible says that that is the very definition of sin. But for somebody to become a true believer in Jesus Christ, what they do is they sit there and say, I realize I am not in charge. And I submit myself wholly and fully to the person of Jesus Christ based on not only who he is, but what he accomplished on the cross for me. That's when salvation takes place. Then the rest of our life in sanctification is demonstrated by submitting to Christ ultimately, by submitting to Jesus, by submitting to those that God has placed over us. So maybe you've never come to that point before, but today is the day. If you'll submit yourself fully to Christ, believe in him, confess your sin, and turn and repent, God will save you this morning. Now on one final note, let me say this. I want to give you the biblical and theological understanding of how or who governs the church and how that all works. But next week, we need you to be here because next week, we're going to talk about what is this leadership like. I think if you understand what this leadership is supposed to be like, I think that will help maybe some of those emotions that you have that well up inside that you begin to understand that it's servant leadership. That's the way that they're supposed to lead. And we're going to unpack the role of an elder next week. The following week, we're going to go in depth to the qualifications of the elders because we are going to be setting aside, you are going to be setting men aside in our church that pictures what an elder is. Then we're going to be voting on them. Okay, sound good? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads.